Now, this is Box to Box with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgeley. Oh, what a goal! For, For Chemist, Chemist Warehouse. Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage moving Absolutely fantastic! Hello and welcome to Box to Box, the show that is everything football. You're with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgeley to run the rule over the past week in the world game. First edition news with Willem van Denderen shortly and of course our former ITN journo turned pundit Derek Dyson will be joining us throughout the show. Now events in the world come thick and fast so there's never a week where the challenge of picking the eyes out of the news of the week isn't difficult. But when football becomes a major point of diplomacy in the middle of the invasion of a sovereign state, that takes things to another level. So, of course, this week we'll do our best to look at the football issues around Russia's invasion of the Ukraine, including expulsion from World Cup qualification, Roman Abramovich selling Chelsea, EA Sports removing Russian teams from FIFA 2022. Everything that we can, we'll talk about it. But, of course, among all that, we'll provide something of an oasis by covering some of the other stories which are bubbling along. And one of those domestically has been the Wellington Phoenix, who, despite relocation and constant COVID-related postponements, haven't lost a game since New Year's Day and have launched a women's team in the Women's A-League competition this year. We'll talk to Phoenix General Manager David Dome to see how Ufuk Talley's men have been managing the disruption to sit on the brink of the top six with four games in hand. Willem after that with the latest on Matildas and Socceroos. And since all the excitement of the Euros, it's been ages since we spoke to Optus and ESPN man Adriano Del Monte about what's going on in Italy. We'll pack in as much as possible with a chat about Christian Valpardo, a cracking Serie A season so far, and the Azzurri, of course, who must have the entire nation chewing their fingernails to the quick ahead of the final World Cup playoffs later this month. And, of course, we'll wrap it up with an extended stoppage time where we're really going to dig deep into the issues of the week uh, around football and um, and how it aligns to uh, the events in Ukraine and, and Russia. It's a challenge to try and balance at all edges, isn't it? Um, you know, so many people in Russia, yourself, you and, and Willem had a wonderful time during the World Cup. It must break your heart to see what's been going on. Hello, Rob. Hello, listeners right around uh, Australia and, and also around the world. Yes, Rob, uh, have deep relationships in Russia. So um, it is a challenging time for everybody who's had a... Uh, an affiliation with uh, with Russia. However, um, obviously, uh, it's easy to divorce the general Russian public with the ruling class, and um, all the Russian people that I know uh, are like you and I, Rob, just horrified with what's happening and want it to end right away. And uh, I just hope that uh, um, cooler heads will prevail and people get round the table and find a solution to this uh, uh terrible, um, terrible uh, invasion and uh, the disputes on both sides of the coin. Having said all of that, sport and politics have collided, haven't they, Rob? It's just been um, one story after another as the fallout of Russia's invasion of Ukraine clatters through football. Willem, you've got some amazing stories off the top of the show for us. I do, Michael, and you, Rob, as well. FIFA and UEFA have banned Russia from international competition indefinitely following the lead of the International Olympic Committee. FIFA's initial stance of allowing Russian sides to continue as the Football Union of Russia was strongly condemned by Poland, Sweden and the Czech Republic in particular, leading to the FIFA Bureau hardening their stance. It's unprecedented for FIFA to ban a nation without the support of the United Nations, although that is fairly obviously due to the fact that Russia are one of the EU's five permanent 
members. So what does it mean uh, for the literal teams? Well, Russia's men's side are just about out of World Cup qualifying. Happy to put a a line through them, Michael. Their women's side look highly unlikely to play uh, at the women's Euros mid-year. And in terms of club football, Spartak Moscow have been removed from the Europa League. So we'll start with you, Uh, Edge. Last week you sat here and said you were opposed to the division of Russia because it does uh, exclude the the working class, if you like, uh, the people on the street from the rest of the world. And that's not healthy to have countries living in silos. So has your view on that changed over the past week? Uh, my view about sport and politics um, mixing is is consistent because if you ban Russia, do you ban Saudi Arabia from the World Cup because they're throwing just as many bombs in Yemen as Russia are in Ukraine at the moment? So do you ban Iran, who are on the other side of that conflict in, in, in Yemen? So, you know, where do you start and where do you stop? That's, that's the issue. So uh, football uh, or sport and politics is a unfortunate mix and when you do mix sport and politics um, those lines of boundaries are blurred Um, having said all of that FIFA was always going to have a difficult uh, position with this one and mainly because the the Russian Football Union's president is Alexander Durkov who is also chief executive of of a subsidiary of state-owned energy giant Gazprom who and also sits on the UEFA executive and Gazprom being such a big partner of football at FIFA and UEFA as well. So there's been some difficult times in the uh, in the cor- in the corridors and the boardrooms associated with football. But yes, obviously the weight of um, public opinion and the weight of the world's uh, condemnation of Russia's involvement in Ukraine has forced FIFA's hand, and they and they've acted. Um, albeit slowly, wouldn't you agree, Rob? Yeah, I do. Um, I think uh, some of the comments that uh, that landed uh, most uh, were from the, the, the countries, uh, FAs, who were, who were scheduled to play Russia in some of these, uh, these upcoming playoffs. And uh, I was listening to the BBC at the time the FIFA announcement came through that they were going to allow Russia to continue on under... Uh, whatever guys it was that they described and and no sooner had that announcement came uh, been announced than the uh, the polish uh, fa president cesare kuletsa uh, just blasted it's as if they knew it was coming wasn't it yeah. uh, exactly he yeah. pretty much he'd said so for anyone who didn't hear it he said today's fifa decision is totally unacceptable we are not interested in participating in this game of appearances our stance remains intact the polish national team will not play russia no matter what the name of the team is so i think at that point it was uh, they were aligned with um, with the other countries in the group and um, and you know fifa just uh, saw the writing on the wall and they had no choice UEFA have moved the Champions League final from St. Petersburg to the Stade de France in Paris and have severed ties with long-term sponsor Gazprom. Gazprom are a largely state-owned gas company that has sponsored the Champions League for a decade with a deal worth an estimated $40 Australian annually. They were also due to be a major sponsor of the 2024 Euros in Germany. German club Schalke have also terminated their deal with Gazprom, which brought them an estimated $35 annually. So, Rob, before we get on to what is probably a more seismic step in terms of Roman Abramovich and his decision to sell Chelsea, uh, the moves here around Gazprom and the corporate sponsorships are relatively logical steps once you uh, get to the point where you ban Russia altogether. Well, you don't really have a choice at that point, do you, at all? Roman Abramovich has stated he'll sell Chelsea in the coming months and donate any net proceeds to victims of war in Ukraine. Abramovich denies he has close personal ties to Vladimir Putin, and separately, it's believed he's been trying to orchestrate peace talks over the past week. Chris Bryant of the UK's Labor Party stated in Parliament that Abramovich is terrified of the potential sanctions he could face if those ties are found to be legitimate, and that he's looking to offload his UK properties immediately. Abramovich has said it's he 
It's been a privilege of a lifetime to be involved in Chelsea and he hoped to be able to say one last goodbye in person at Stamford Bridge. So we're going to bring Derek in later in stoppage time to really get into the meat of this story because there's a fair bit to unpack. But Rob, reading through the statement, I actually felt a little bit sorry for Abramovich, but it is really hard to know uh, what to believe. I take your point, Willem, um, that Abramovich um, has... he's. And we will talk about this, as you say, with Derek um, in stoppage time in, in great detail. He initiated the the era of of billionaires uh, transforming um, English clubs, and uh, and bought a lot of positive uh, outcomes for Chelsea. But when you're aligned to somebody who has conducted an illegal invasion of a sovereign nation, and your interests have been parallel and intersecting with that individual over such a long period of time, regardless of whether you participated in any of the decisions that uh, that obviously the politicians have, have taken, you, the, the optics of the situation demand that uh, that you pay a price. Uh, so, um, you know, we, we talk about sports washing and um, and whether it's um, an issue that um, that you know once the genie was out of the bottle can never be put back in. I think this is an example of uh, I think I, I heard it on Max Rushton's podcast, The Guardian Football Weekly. It's the the Faustian pact, the deal with the devil. And once you take the money, there's always going to be a payday. But Edge, like you, you know these things better than anybody I know. Um, what's your take? At its purest, uh, Roman Abramovich is a billionaire because of uh, what he was able to construct around the time that the Soviet Union disintegrated and uh, Boris Yeltsin was uh, ruling Russia pretty ordinarily. So um, as a result of that, um, whether he did that through skill, good fortune or underhandedness, nobody really knows, but um, he's one of the wealthiest guys in the world. He's owned Chelsea for since 2003 and he steered the Stamford Bridge Club to 19 major trophies, five Premier League wins, two Champions League wins, five FA Cup wins, three League Cup wins, uh, two um, FA Charity Shield, Community Shields, and uh, a Club World Cup, and he way for Super Cup. So it's a fairly good resume uh, for a football club owner, and he's just been tipping money in and tipping it in and tipping it in and tipping it in. So um, if you're a Chelsea fan, you're probably feeling a little bit sorry today because he really has been the perfect owner. Plenty more to get into there. So as I said, we will pick it up in stoppage time with Derek. But for now, we'll have a look at the big news on a domestic front from this week, and that is that Celtic, Rangers, Sydney FC and Western Sydney Wanderers will meet in an exhibition tournament just prior to the World Cup this November. The Sydney Super Cup will see an old firm derby take place on foreign soil for the first time ever. And if all goes to plan, we'll see Ange Postacoglu personally return home for the first time in three years. There's been a lot of angst, Rob, and anger from the two sides of Glasgow who have uh, seen this as the two boardrooms, if you like, cozying up for commercial game and we know how much they hate each other uh, in the stands and they're saying that's really not what they're all about. Both sides displayed banners uh, in their games immediately after the announcement. Uh, So it'll be interesting to see uh, what's sort of support actually turns out in the stands because we know these games uh, fill the coffers and fill the stands but rarely do they leave any actual legacy uh, for the Australian domestic game. Look, with respect to the the Glaswegians who object to the rest of the world getting uh, a look at the magnificence of this old firm derby which is by any account if not the best, it's in the grand final of the the best derbies in international football. the short-nightedness of, of these people 
on the one hand, that they want to be one of the biggest clubs in the world, but on the other hand, they don't want to use um, the, the the greatest asset that they've got, the old firm Derby, to, to leverage their clubs to become the likes of Liverpool or PSG. So you can't have your cake and eat it too. Um, I'd be interested to hear what the opinion of the people who weren't uh, holding up banners was in that environment because, you know, how many Scots... And have, have travelled to Australia and, and live in this country that have had to walk away for, for opportunity to, to give their families a better life that didn't have the chance to live in Glasgow and, and go to old firm derbies that live in, in this country that'll, uh, that'll get to enjoy it. I mean, I, I'll never forget that night at the MCG when Liverpool played Melbourne victory. Uh, still, we talked to George Sefton, for those who haven't listened to the show uh, for as long as, uh, as it's been on air, George Sefton, the ground announcer at Anfield, uh, um, famously said to us that the, the people at Liverpool Liverpool, who were there that night, said they'd never heard "You'll Never Walk Alone" sung louder. So, no, I think it's short-sightedness at worst, and and represents the uh, opinion of of a vocal minority. Okay, I think it's a, a vocal majority. I don't think it's an issue in terms of them coming and playing for, uh, on foreign soil. I think they'd, they'd love to leverage their profile. I think it's the fact that they seem to be doing it together uh, that is the issue. But we can agree to uh, well, we can agree to disagree how, on that. How are they going to do that? Otherwise, what do they just send one club at a time? I mean, absolutely. I think if Celtic came out here and played anyone else, it'd still be huge, especially with Ange at the helm over the past nine months. The Scottish Premiership is a second-tier football competition at best. This is their greatest asset. This is a visionary decision decision um, that needs to be applauded. So uh, anyway, we can agree to disagree, as you say, William. And Michael, how important is it actually going to be, given it's going to be three days before the World Cup? We'll be thinking about other things, won't we? We will be, but it'll be a moment in time for Sydney FC and Western Sydney Wanderers, an opportunity to leverage their brands uh, off the back of Celtic and Rangers. But um, I must admit, um, I am in the Scottish fans' corners on this one. Don't want to go into too much detail after Rob's uh, gone off the long run, but um, yeah, Plain friendlies overseas. No, thanks. And to Africa to finish, Cameroon President Paul Bia has distributed 10,000 Central African francs to each of the families of the eight people killed in the Alembe Stadium crush on January 24. That figure converts to Australian to about $23,000 to each of those families. Two children aged 12 and 14 were among the eight fatalities, while a further 47 were injured. Fortunately, uh, there's no one left remaining in hospital, so all of those 47 have recovered. Uh, those injured have all been compensated with 230 Australian dollars. Uh, it's been revealed, and we knew it was a, a locked gate that led to the issue. It wasn't actually uh, that the gate was locked. The issue arose when it was then opened up, and that created the stampede of a, an unnatural sort of mass of people that had sort of milled around. So, yeah, a very sad chapter Rob to what was an otherwise great African Cup of Nations that we look back on uh, and a chapter that we can probably close now. Yeah, yeah, well, um, I guess it's a chapter that'll live long in our memories for so many other reasons. Hopefully it gets closed uh, in a fashion that doesn't allow it to happen again, but it, it, it just resonates so so much with um, the Hillsborough disaster when pretty much the exact same scenario occurred when uh, the crush happened, when, when the gates were ordered to be opened and, uh, and too many people uh, uh, entered that ground. You'd think that regardless of where you are in the world, that the lessons would have been learned, but uh, clearly they weren't. Back to you, Rob. All right, well and well done, mate. Good start. Um, okay, well, look, we know uh, there are so many issues going on around the world that we're going to talk about them throughout the course of the show, but there's lots going on domestically in football and uh, um, and we're going to take a, a little break from the international events and talk about a, a story that we've all been fascinated with and that is of the Wellington Phoenix. The, the men's team have had to... Uh, uh, 
play out of Australia for the last two years. They're sitting on the fringe of the top six. The women's team, uh, they look like they were going to have a winless season. They've come back and had a couple of great wins late in the competition. So we're going to talk to the general manager of the Wellington Phoenix, David Dome, after the break on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Welcome back to Box to Box. And the story that we've been watching with fascination over the last couple of years is the how, just how the Wellington Phoenix uh, have managed to, to keep uh, the performance standards up with that club not being able to play in New Zealand. Uh, they sit in the men's competition currently just outside of the top six with multiple games in hand despite more or as many COVID postponements as any other club in the competition. And the women's team, who looked like they were going to battle towards a win, have come up with a couple of uh, really feisty wins in the late part of the women's women's A-League season. And we welcome to talk about that great club, the general manager of the Wellington Phoenix, David Dome. How are you, David? Good, guys. Thanks for having me. David, fantastic to have you on the program. I guess everybody now is um, asking you, now that uh, there's some light at the end of the tunnel around the borders with New Zealand, what is the planning and status of Wellington Phoenix returning home and uh, getting in that uh, stadium in front of your fantastic home fans? Yeah, look, we, we've been discussing with, a, in fact, our position with APL from the start, even when we did the, the draw right back at the start of the season, would be let's just keep the option open to Wellington having some games back at home towards the end of the season. So Greg O'Rourke and his team has been really good in trying to facilitate that, and, and we've been continuing those discussions. At any time the government over here has made a decision or there's been some movement, we've kept them in the loop. And um, Look, there's still a couple of hurdles to get through, but at least I think, as you say, the border entry one has now been resolved. I think we can get both teams in. New Zealanders, Australians and internationals to get into play a game. There, there still remains the issue here in that we are still replying to restricted um, capacity in stadiums. Um, and at the moment, if we were to play this weekend at Sky Stadium, we could have 1,200 people there, which is just a nonsense, right? It's, it's ridiculous. Um, we're hopeful that the, the, you know, the, the current modelling says that we're going to peak with Omnicrom in the next two to three weeks and then we come start, you come down the other side and then the feeling is that the government will relax what we call we've got this traffic light system, we'll go from red to orange. If we go to orange, then we're essentially open slather again. So that's good. You know, we're now looking at what, um, early March now. I would suggest that by hopefully, we've been talking to APL, that maybe a couple of games um, towards the end of the season in April we, we might have uh, capacity relaxed, the restrictions around capacity and stadium relaxed, and we can have full-blown games here in Wellington. And, you know, I'm, I'm convinced we'd get, you know, last year we had 24,500 at, at Sky when we came back. We'd get that again, no problems, I'm sure of it. Absolutely. David, um, the Australian football community has really um, recognised the impost on your club over the last two seasons. It's been a Herculean effort by your club, your players, your coaches, your backroom staff, your fans, sponsors, no doubt, owners. Um, just what is, have you felt the love? I mean, we couldn't have completed the competition without the, the overriding um, human commitment that your club's shown to the A-League. Can you just tell us about the support, um, moral or otherwise, you've been getting um, as a result of the you know, the dislocation of your club? 
Yeah, and that, you're absolutely right. Certainly on social media, we see it, and we have fans from other clubs who are, who have you know post on our pages and post on our Twitter and Instagram accounts, and you know acknowledging the sacrifice that the clubs made for the last it's two and a half seasons now, which is quite unbelievable. Going into this night, if someone had said you're going to be dislocated for two and a half seasons, they would have said, "Oh, you're absolutely mad, aren't you?" But it's been two and a half seasons now, and you know, we, we, you know, please, I think we're towards the end of it now, and the next season we're back to normal. Um, and, and then there'll be who knows, you know, we've got we've got uh, we've got uh, you know a, a global pandemic, and now we've got floodwaters in, in Australia. It's like what's going to happen next? You know, what we're going to have next year? You know, you just don't know. But yeah, it's been really good the support we've got. I mean, our fans have been great and understanding. You know, the commercial support in New Zealand turned around, and we managed to pull together some some partners who have been fantastic. Um, a few local ones um, in, in Wollongong as well who have helped really with the women's team. Like we've had a few key ones in, in people like Biomed who are doing all our physiotherapy and our medical support. We just couldn't, you know, we couldn't really have completed the women's season. The Wolves very kindly have lent us their, their training ground. Um, Wynn Stadium has been fantastic. You know, um, Southern Classic Cars have helped us. You know, just all of these people that have really come together and the Fraternity Club who were fantastic when the men were there as well. We just couldn't have done the seasons without them. So, no, it's been really, really good. And like I say, the, the football community has, has showed their support for Wellington in various ways, and it's, and it's been excellent. So really couldn't have been happier than, um, with what, what's, you know, what's been shown and how the, the, the support for the club has been shown. For, you know, what you're quite right, has been a, a pretty huge effort, you know, especially from Ufatelli and his team who have kept that squad together and kept them tight over two and a half years. Yeah, uh, amazing, David. Just the just the um, management of that process and living in, in hotels and so forth. But what about the financial impact? What can you tell us about yeah. the impact financially on the club? And um, has that been um, softened by some um, extra funding from the A League? How has all that played out? What can you tell us? Yeah, it's it's been hard. You know, this year our uh, season membership pretty much evaporated overnight. Our commercial revenue is down. Match day revenue is non-existent. You know, all the games that you would normally um, sell tickets for at, at home in Wellington or Eden Park in Auckland, that it's gone. You know, it's it's almost negligible now because we're just not selling tickets. Um, no, say season memberships got a you know a tenth of what we would normally do. Um, APL has helped this year with relocation costs to Australia, which has been good because we couldn't have done it by we would have we couldn't have afforded it to be honest. So that's been good. We've, we've had a bit of support from other areas as well, which has helped in, in some of the relocation. And like I say, some key partners in, in Australia have helped out in some of the costs. So, I mean, the losses are, are huge. You know, it's in the millions. There's no doubt about it. The, 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 there's, there's, two, there's two aspects to it, of course. is you increase costs because you, you're relocating entire teams to be based in uh, a different country and, you, and the lost revenue. So you put them two together and, and it's into the millions, no doubt. David, I'm keen to have a chat to you about your women's uh, side. Obviously, a very tough season on the pitch with a young squad under Gemma Lewis, but one that towards the back end has delivered a couple of very well-deserved wins. Concept of forming and, and beginning a side to play initially in a different country uh, is unique, obviously. So could you please talk us through a couple of the challenges that that's brought up? Yeah, look, on the, on the women's team, we could not have been happier like how this, this season has played out. We, we came very late to the party. It's it's a project we've been working on now for about six, seven years. It's taken a long time to get it across the line. And then when it did happen, we had to pull it together in about two months. So it was really a, a huge test. But uh, in terms of what Gemma has done and the team that she's pulled together and the way she's got them playing, could not have been happier. 
just some of the play that they've managed to ex- execute with a very little pre-season. And then, like you say, the relocation. So our, our, our experience with the men in Wollongong last year certainly helped. We learned a lot, what worked and what didn't work. And so we managed to find um, accommodation for the players and, and for the staff. Um, and then, like I say, the walls are very generous in, in allowing us to train <coughs> at their facility. So we learned a lot in that, in, in across the men's year um, in the previous season. Um, but it has been with you know without it has hasn't been without its challenges because quite as you rightly put, uh, point out, it's a very very young team. Um, so we've had to put some mental health uh, wraparounds to, to to protect the team as best as we can. But I've got to be really, they've been so resilient. They've been such a close knit team. Um, and given that they'd come from both Australia and New Zealand, and from within New Zealand, they've come from a number of centres. It's not as if they all knew each other that well. Um, they've bonded really, really well. It's such a tight knit team. They couldn't have, couldn't have been happier with how that season has played out. And you know, the two wins and the draws. Uh, and now they've got another game, uh, hopefully, all things considered. Uh, hopefully uh, against Perth Glory, the last game of the season. If they get something out of that, then potentially they're off the bottom of the table, which would be well, to be honest. Story. Well, I mean, it, yeah. How many, weeks did you have? How many weeks did did you have before the start of the season to put them together? Uh, about two months. Yeah, so it's wow. an inc- incredible story if you get off the bottom of the ladder. What a game that that would be for the girls. And David, I'm interested in your eventual transition back to Wellington from Wollongong. I remember reading uh, a couple of months ago, maybe six months ago, that players and their families, particularly in the men's side, have rental agreements in Wollongong. There's real roots there now. You can't just sort of up sticks. And you also couldn't sort of roll back into Wellington and maybe find 30 or 40 rental properties uh, required to house a team. So what's the club's strategy to transition back home uh, when the New Zealand government and hopefully COVID, uh, COVID sort of simmers right down and the New Zealand government say it's sort of open slather in terms of the borders? What's the sort of transition policy? Yeah, we're just working through that now. I think what we're probably going to end up doing is um, we'll have a look at it. All, it all boiled down to how many games are in New Zealand and the distance between them because it, we, after um, the next couple of games, let, let's just say, when we get into April, we've only really got three games left. And given the way the season is planning out, it very much could be those three games could take place in seven days because Given the number of games we have to catch get before the end of the season, yeah, exactly. All the postponements and the catch-up games. All of April, we could be we could realistically be playing three games a week for the entirety of April, uh, which is going to be a huge challenge on the team and its depth. And, and we're not the only one. Most clubs are in this position, of course, because of the uh, the postponements due to, to, to COVID and now the the, the weather. Um, and then there's things like we've got to factor in Melbourne victories, ACL, and Melbourne victories, Sydney's, and uh, you know their ACL commitments, and what's going to happen there. So and and cities, of course, and that impacts on our on our draw. So we're looking at it and going, look, potentially what we do is just play out the entirety of the season in Australia and stay there, and just fly back to New Zealand for for one game, maybe two games, and then fly back, finish the season, and then just reevaluate when it comes to um, the final series if we're in and around the mix. Well, David, given the admiration that's uh, rather the determination that's been on display at your club over the past couple of years, it wouldn't be a surprise at all if you could find a way into a Champions League of some form. So thank you very much for the work you and your club have done over the past two years. Uh, everyone in Australia has watched on with, with great admiration and it's been great to have you on the program. No problem. Thanks, guys. And like I say, we really do appreciate the support. And like we do read all the messages. We see the support on, on our channels from the other clubs and the fans of the other clubs. And like I say, it is very, very much appreciated. Outstanding. Wellington Phoenix General Manager David Dome there. Stick around on the other side of the break. We'll have a look at the Socceroos and Matildas and how they've fared across the past week. Box to box. Can you believe it? 
Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Welcome back to Box to Box. Great uh, chat with David Dome there, guys. Really fascinating to sit uh, back on the bench and, and listen to the conversation. A really erudite guy and uh, a great leader, obviously, to have gotten the club through the difficulties of the last couple of seasons. Uh, we're going to talk Socceroos and Matildas in a moment. But before we do... We talked about this last week. Are you ready to do your part to help slow the spread of influenza? We've lived with COVID for two years now, but COVID is definitely not the flu and the flu has been lying dormant and it is going to come back this season. All of the medical experts are indicating that uh, it is going to be the worst flu season for at least three years. So get into Chemist Warehouse and book your flu immunization right now. I did it, I just jumped online, it was nice and easy. You just put your top postcode into the window and if you don't have a computer, just walk into the store and book it there. Immunization is a safe and effective way to help protect you from the flu. By getting immunized, you also help to protect those too ill or too young to be vaccinated. After all, it takes a community to build immunity. To book your quadrivalent strain vaccine for $17.99, go to chemistwarehouse.com.au. Exactly. Have you been in there, Michael, yet? Are you going to get your full vaccine? Ka-ching, yeah. I've been in there and uh, filled up my uh, little basket with all sorts of goodies. I uh, had to get some vitamin pills, had to get some... You know, just the general stuff that filled up my little uh, kit that I take away when I'm away for months that, that I don't get access to. Excellent. Lip balm and you name it. it was I, I just went out with a, three bags full of stuff. I said, just put it on Rob Gilbert's account. No wonder my account went off the charts. No, my account goes directly to my MasterCard. I promise you that. You don't need a script when you get your flu vaccination. The prescription and administration are provided in store by a qualified health professional. And even young guys like you, Willem, need to get your jab. So yep. get in and get it done soon. That website again for bookings, chemistwarehouse.com.au slash flu. Chemist Warehouse, great savings every single day. Every single day, Rob. Only 263 days until the kickoff of the World Cup in Qatar. This is Soccer is a Matilda Central for the Green and Gold Army. Beyond that, Michael, it'll be a short turnaround to the Men's Asian Cup. And after that, bang, we're into a home World Cup year. So make sure you're part of the Green and Gold Army for a massive chapter in Australian football. And you can start today by signing up to the mailing list at ggatravel.com.au. And before we get to the form of the Matildas and Socceroos at Clubland, uh, we know the next step of the Matildas' journey to that home World Cup, and that is going to be hosting New Zealand's football ferns in two friendlies on the 8th and 12th of April. The second of those is going to be in Canberra, and $1 of every ticket will head towards the Women's Cerebral Palsy National Football program which supports female footballers with cerebral palsy acquired brain injuries or symptoms from stroke so rob that is magnificent and the other exciting part of it uh from a football perspective is that we're going to see australia reconnect with our nation's capital Uh, i don't think an australian national team's played in canberra since uh the 2018 world cup soccer michael correct me if i'm wrong but rob we'll throw to you first i remember about that game was james meredith was pulled out of obscurity to play left back by Ange postacoglu and he did a good job and we beat... Was, was it Bangladesh or Nepal? Nepal. Might have been Nepal or... Might have been Bangladesh. No, it wasn't Bangladesh. We played Bangladesh in Perth. Might have been Nepal, actually. Yeah. But before we move too far on from the point you were just making there, Willem, yes, I know you were throwing to me to uh, make a comment on uh, the women's cerebral palsy team. And uh, look, for anybody who doesn't know, I mean, we just make assumptions that people know what different uh, disabilities are. Cerebral palsy, for those who don't know, is a brain injury that uh, occurs either during pregnancy or 
during a traumatic birth. And uh, and for those who've listened to Box to Box for a long time, uh, they'd know that I've got a 17-year-old son, Alexander, who has cerebral palsy. He's in a wheelchair. He's the uh, most beautiful little fella in the world. And, uh, and when you see support uh, from organisations uh, for... for we have to get him on. Oh, mate, he like, you want me to tell you his joke of the day? Yeah, but please tell us his joke of the day. What's big and grey and doesn't matter? What's big and grey and doesn't matter? I don't know. Grey matter? And irrelevant. And irrelevant. We needed that. It's been a tough week. We needed a lift, Rob. That's good. Uh, that's but, uh, yeah, so it's a brain injury and the little guy is just a happy little fellow. And uh, and when you give back... He's not little him, anymore. <laughs> no, he's not. He's 17. He's a big boy. Yeah, so uh, look, that just really is uplifting, not only for the for the you know the kids and adults who suffer from cerebral palsy, but also you know all their families and loved ones, and, and you guys too. You know, you always want to know what's going on and what the um, what the, the latest is. So uh, so yeah, as you said, well, I'm at, uh, we needed a bit of a, uh, an uplift after a difficult week, and uh, and that piece of news is a good one. Let's have a look at some FA Cup action from the women's side of the game in England. Sam Kerr's helped Chelsea pass Leicester in the... Uh, that was the last 16 stage, so they're into the last eight. She scored twice and laid off two more in a 7-0 win. Arsenal's Aussie trio were all involved as the Gunners put four past Liverpool to join Chelsea in the quarterfinals. Caitlin Ford scored their third and set up their fourth, while Lydia Williams kept a clean sheet. Also progressing were Manchester City, for whom Alana Kennedy and Hayley Rasso were involved as they put four past Man United. And West Ham, where Mackenzie Arnold and Tamika Yallop played 120 minutes in their extra time win over Reading. And the draw for the quarters has been conducted. These matches to be played from the 21st of March. Chelsea against Birmingham, Arsenal against Coventry, West Ham are away to Ipswich Town and Man City will host Everton. To the gents, Aydin Rustic earned a start for Eintracht Frankfurt in their Bundesliga clash with Bayern Munich, getting through 82 minutes as they went down 1-0. Michael, he's played six of their last eight. So he's thereabouts in what is a top three competition in the world. Yeah, I, I think he's going to be picked. What do you think? He's going to be picked for the Socceroos? Yeah. Oh, he's a lock. But in terms of his club career, I mean, he's 25. He's, uh, he's stuck it out in the top division where he probably could have had regular everyday or every week football in the second division. So, no, I think he's doing really well to, uh, to continue to break through and be a first-team player in the, the top tier. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, I think he's going to be a first-team player in the Socceroos. That's my point. <laughs> Let's have a look at the A-League men's competition. Uh, need to correct something last week on Western United. So we mentioned them uh, following Pro Build's descent into administration. Uh, it's come to my attention this week that they actually haven't been associated with Pro Build uh, for a little while anyway. So it, won't, it wouldn't have been Pro Build building the stadium, uh, but they don't have a replacement. So I've asked a few questions of the club this week. Michael, you said that they wouldn't answer our questions. I'll put a few to them and we'll see what they come back with. Uh, another big issue around the A-League men's is that John Satsumas is going to depart Western Sydney at the end of the season, Rob. He was their inaugural uh, CEO and he delivered some brilliant times from pretty much nothing uh, to winning that premiership in the first season, the Asian Champions League, uh, the brand spanking training facilities they've got there and they've been in a, a close part of the Parramatta Stadium rebuild. Uh, but over the past little while, the relationship certainly seems to have soured. So he's decided it's best to move on at the end of the campaign. Yeah, I guess, uh, you know, he'll leave an incredible legacy, but, you know, we see it so often in football, don't we? I mean, uh, you see uh, coaches all the time, the the great um, Claudio Ranieri at Leicester winning the title and then getting sacked not long after. And, uh, you know, how, how often does it, does it happen where uh, a great story, you stick around a little bit too long and the results don't go your way for a couple of years and, uh, and you know, the uh, the... the great memories and celebrations are, uh, are forgotten and 
yeah, it's like uh, don't let the door hit you on the way out. And it's been a bit ugly the way it's played out, Michael, over the past few months. Dean Heffernan and Patrick Zvansvike, former assistant coaches at the club. Dean, a senior coach of the women's program, uh, obviously had a fair bit to say publicly. And a stack of players, a stack of former players uh, have liked on Instagram the post that announced Satsumis' departure so that's a little bit uh, a little bit un, unsavoury if you like and there's I mean it's just been a revolving door in terms of players the whole way through and since Popovich's departure uh, in terms of coaches as well yeah the, the media release that announced his departure had um uh, quotes from about 15 different people who were saying in how great John Tatsumis was but it's it's very if you work in the football industry, it's very clear that he's a divisive guy. And I'm just wondering um, whether this is the, the, the beginning of a clean-out um, at Western Sydney, similar to what Melbourne Victory had that sort of righted their ship. Because we know at the moment Western Sydney fans are... Uh, well, they're not enjoying uh, mm-hmm. where their women's program's at and they're not enjoying where their men's program's at. And you look at the squad and you think they should be doing better. I do anyway, but... Um, We'll just wait and see what transpires as a result of John's departure, whether that will be a bit of a domino effect for a few more to go. Yeah, you think so. I mean, you look at the the quality of coaches they've had through there since Popovich. Okay, not the greatest of the greats, but a lot of those guys have had success, uh, particular sort of Guillermo, uh, excuse me, not Guillermo, um, the other the other Spaniard, Josep Gombau. Um, he had success at another club and for... The, it became it became a non coincidence basically. There was there was something wrong uh, up above the the coaches. So yeah, we'll see if that clean out does eventuate. To the women's competition, Michael, the big story of the week is Adelaide. One week to go, they've sealed the previously elusive final spot under Adrian Stenter. Uh, the point at the where the Matildas went to the Asian Cup and City victory and Sydney all lost two players uh, and Adelaide lost none. We said that was a real opportunity for them and they've kicked on. They've scored 33 goals, uh, the second most in the competition and uh, they are going to break their finals duck. And they completely obliterated Melbourne victory in the uh, last match in Adelaide, uh, the Pride game. So well done to Adelaide United and uh, the women's program there. It's been a real success this year. The finals is ahead of them. I think uh, it'll be a bit different in the finals once uh, you know Sydney and um, Melbourne victory, those teams get to rest and get their best team back on the park. Uh, we'll just see how those finals play out. But what a... Um, what an injection of um, quality that they've brought to the season this year. And just on um, the A-Leagues generally, did you know, Willem, that um, this season there are 10 players of uh, Japanese nationality in the A-Leagues playing? Seven in the men and three in the women. That's a record for Japanese players playing in the Australian top flight. So that eclipses the previous record of six in 2020 I just thought that was a happy little uh, anecdote for the A-Leagues. No, I didn't know that. No, we should be tying in as closely as possible with our uh, with our neighbouring confederation. There's a lot to leverage off there, and particularly if you can package up some TV rights and then send the A League uh, abroad, because there is a strong contingent. Uh, maybe Southeast Asia rather than Japan is a, a, a richer uh, financial vein that we could tap into. But no, I think that is definitely a, a very happy stat. And also, I just want to mention a couple of other things, if I may, that relate to Australians. Michael Valkanis, obviously, um, he. Uh, was named assistant coach of KAS Upen in January. Uh, that's where Tim Cahill mm-hmm. is the Jigo. director of football. Um, he's a board member there, and they are part of the uh, Qatar Football Club network, uh, which is interesting. So, so Michael Valkanis, well, um, they weren't going so well. Uh, they've had a 10-match winless streak, 
um, and they're only four points above the drop zone. So Tim and his board sacked the coach and they've appointed Michael Alcarnas as the senior coach. So he's got a big job to uh, keep Upen in the top flight because the Qataris paying the bills will want them in the top flight. And for as long as I've been following Australian football, which isn't as long as some, but it's a little while now, there has just been constant frustration and anger around the terms technical director. And news broke this week, Michael, uh, through oh, yeah. our friend Vince Regari around the possible oversight to look past Johan Langer, who's gone on to some real success at Aston Villa. What more can you tell us there? Well, he published an excellent yarn last Monday, um, breaking the news that, as you said, the FA looked over the current sporting director at Aston Villa, Johan Lange, when they appointed Rob Sherman in 2019. Rob Sherman was the football manager or football general manager at Melbourne Victory at the time. History now tells the story that that was a wasted appointment. Sherman, obviously, you, you may remember Willem and Rob that um, he only had nine-month term in the, at the FFA and he ended with explosive revelations and accusations uh, assessing that FA's political, bureaucratic and administrative mindset got in his way and he wasn't able to do his job. So while Sherman was crashing and burning bridges, Langer's made hay while the sun shines and he's now considered one of the brightest minds in the Premier League. It makes you wonder how on earth the people who employed Sherman got it so wrong. When Good, uh, good uh, effort to make hay in the Birmingham sun. He must be good. Yeah. <laughs> That's not much sun. That's a, it's a good joke. Well, oh, there's not much you. sun in Birmingham. That's a good joke. Yeah, cheers. Yeah, yeah. There's just yeah. as many much sun in Birmingham as there is in bloody Amsterdam, mate. So just in case you want to, uh, Eindhoven, please. Eindhoven, that's right, yeah. So it just proves that um, we have so many lost opportunities in Australian football, and that was one of them. I thought it was a very good yarn because um, the technical director position currently is filled with Trevor Morgan, who is also the Ollie Roos coach, who's <laughs> he's also got, the Joey's coach. He's so he's packed, Trevor. He's, got, yeah, a, he's, he's got a few balls he's juggling, and can we please get a technical director? And I do believe that I'm, I'm having a bit of fun, but I do believe that the FA is moving on that recruitment. Let's hope they get a good one with them. What do they do, Rob? Well, I don't know what they do, but I'm going to just segue from the the, uh, the letting the good ones get away into our next guest, who is Adriano Del Monte, uh, a man who performs across a bunch of different media organisations because one of the ones we don't want to get away that we're going to ask Adriano about is Christian Volpato, who is uh, in the middle of a, an arm wrestle for uh, his uh, international allegiance. So... Uh, Anyway, we've let enough good ones get away over the year, Rob Sherman being one of them. So, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens uh, with Paul Carter. Let's talk to Adrian Del Monte after the break and find out on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Well, who would have thought in July last year when we were talking to our good friend Adriano Del Monte that um, the fortunes of Italy would have uh, moved so far to the point where they are no guarantee that they'll be attending the World Cup. Uh, of course, we've heard some great stories uh, in the City R since that time, particularly from an Australian point of view. And uh, we welcome Adriano back. He can be heard across ESPN, B in Sports, Sony Sports India, Super Sport, Fox Sports Asia and Optus, of course. He's everywhere, Adriano, but right now he's in Milan. How are you, mate? Very well. Good to be back. Another big year ahead and, yeah, a couple of nervy weeks ahead for Italy and Italian fans all over the world. 
Adriano, great to have you back on. Before we get into the temperature check from the ground there in Milan on the Azzurri, need to ask you about Christian Volpato. Obviously, we're watching on as very keen and very hopeful Aussies that he will choose the green and gold. He scored his breakthrough goal for Roma under Jose Mourinho last week. And as I said, we're all very excited. But then again, we in Australia don't have many 18-year-olds scoring goals in top three leagues. I assume there's a few or maybe a couple of years older doing so in Italy. So how's he being viewed there? Is he, is he seen as one of a few or is he a, a real premium talent? Yeah, look, obviously, it's it's an exciting story from any perspective, uh, starting with the Roma, obviously, Jose Mourinho coming in. It's been a typical Jose Mourinho season, started well, everything's fallen apart, and he's slowly putting it back together. But Mourinho has identified something in, in Borpato and a couple of his, well, current and former Roma Primavera teammates from the youth team that has given him a place on the bench on a number of occasions. I was actually there when he made his debut against Inter Milan in December, a couple of minutes off the bench, and now obviously his first goal in the Roma shirt. So I think there's plenty to be excited about. I, look, I certainly don't think from an Italian perspective he's viewed as a potential international at this point, certainly not on on the Italian radar. But I mean, if you can continue to, to perform and continue to get minutes under Mourinho with this Roma squad, it's, it's, it's a certainty that at some point in time with eligibility over here, it will become a topic of conversation. But look, it's a very exciting young Roma team coming through. And, and I think the I think the Serie A are starting to take notice of some of the kids coming through for Pato being one. So from an Australian perspective, look, I, I still do think it is it is a little early. I will I will be catching up with with uh, Christian in, in a couple of weeks to shoot something for Optus Sports. I'll keep an eye out on that one and maybe a few more juicy details to come from what he has to say on that front. But I think at this point he's made it very clear. He's just focusing on his club football, obviously wants to, wants to get things right in the very early stages of his career. And then if and when uh, a nation comes calling, a decision will need to be made. And I think at this point, still very young, still playing very consistently in the youth team levels and, and it's been a, a good start to his senior career. We mentioned off the top of the show the the nervous times that the entire nation of, uh, of Italy is going through. And who would have thought uh, when we read those headlines back in 2017 when Italy missed the World Cup being beaten by Sweden in the playoff? Uh, the, I think one of the famous headlines in the Gazzetta della Sport was Italy this is the apocalypse. Uh, they go on to win last year's Euros and and top of the world. Who would have thought now that um, they're facing a, a two-leg playoff? Uh, uh, first up, they've got to beat North Macedonia, then to beat the winner of Portugal and Turkey to even qualify. It's a very, very tough pill for, for any Italians as well. I can tell you here on the ground, it's, it's obviously from a national team perspective, it is all that everyone has been talking about since the failure to directly qualify for the World Cup. It is a, it is a sickening feeling amongst Azzurri fans here on the ground in Italy. And you're right, after, after four and a bit years ago, that failure to qualify against Sweden, 1-0 defeat over two legs, 0-0 in the second leg after 30 shots here in my city of Milan at San Siro, you would have hoped that perhaps that they would have learned from that, but not to be the case. So despite winning the European Championships, despite that world record 37 game unbeaten run of which since they've only had one loss which ended that run against Spain it's it's really tough to comprehend how Italy find themselves in this position and I can tell you since we 
last caught up, I was very fortunate to host the, the World Cup draw at FIFA for this exact playoffs phase. And Italy obviously drawn into the toughest bracket of the entire playoff, having to play North Macedonia firstly at home, which Italy have been granted as a seeded nation, then having to travel to play the winner of Portugal or Turkey away from home in a one-legged final is as tough as they could have asked for. And I can tell you at that, a bit of an inside story, at that World Cup draw, we did six show rehearsals before the actual official one, pulling out the balls and doing everything. And in four of the six rehearsals that we did with all the FIFA legends who were, who were doing the balls and calling out as if it was, a, it was the real deal, in four of six of them, Italy were drawn against Portugal away from home in the final. It is incredible. And when it came to the final draw, live, the fact that that happened, I was in complete shock and disbelief. And the, the FIFA producers had a very good laugh about that. But look, in any case, it promises to be an incredible playoff final bracket because irrespective of whether it's Italy, whether it's Portugal, one of those two teams are guaranteed to miss out. Both could potentially miss out. And look, I don't think that's the drama that anyone had anticipated ahead of these uh, World Cup playoffs, which are now incredibly this month. Give us your feelings on it. Do, do you feel that, that the squad is uh, is united, is in sufficient form? Um, is that squad that won the Euros uh, uh, in, intact enough? I know that, of course, there were injuries, but uh, but the squad that played that uh, that match at Wembley, uh, can that get the job done? It certainly can get the job done. I still think Italy are one of the best teams in world football, certainly European football. That's why they won the Euros, in my opinion. I, I don't think Italy was the most talented team. I think a lot of that was down to Roberto Mancini. The unity in this squad, the, the love that they had for one another, you really saw that. Clearly, man for man on paper, this is no France, though. So it, it does need to be, it really does need to be a team that is at its tightest, I feel, to, to do what looks very tough on paper and look, North Macedonia first up, I have as many concerns for that match as I do for the following one because North Macedonia will certainly play a brand of football that will be defensive, they'll look to play on a counter-attack, they'll sit they'll sit eleven behind the ball and they will really well, they'll force Italy to try and break the lines and get through. And without Federico Chiesa, who obviously very sadly uh, injured his knee and will miss nine months of action. Italy really lack that player from an attacking sense with that pace to get in behind. No Leonardo Spinazzola, another player who, can, who is capable of doing that. So two very key figures missing for Italy from a personnel perspective. Uh, look, I think Mancini will do the very best he can. Mancini has, has really brought Italy from that apocalyptic period into what they've enjoyed, the success they've enjoyed now. It's, it's been remarkable. But... I think he's going to be required to go up another notch or two to see off first in North Macedonia, a match that will be played in Palermo in Sicily, which will be a remarkable, a remarkable spectacle for those fans in the south. And then having to go to either Portugal or Turkey, which provide two very different prospects. I think both will be very challenging in their own regard. And look, I think Italy have what it takes. I certainly am confident they can do it, but I think it will be a very, very tough one and we'll go down to the bottom winners. Hey, Giano, you mentioned Mourinho and Roma uh, before. Obviously, it's been, as most people would have predicted, a, a bit of a saga. Um, seemingly all was, was lost. But then the, the last time out, they they, they nicked a, 
a win against Spezia right at the death with a late penalty. And where, where do you see this this saga going now with Mourinho? Do you, is there any hope that he can turn this around and deliver? Look, I think there I think there is in some capacity. I think Roma are a team who realistically are not fighting for the Scudetto. I think Mourinho knew that when, when he took the job. He did speak very boldly after being appointed the, the boss of the Giovanni that everything was possible. But look, at this point, Roma have been and will continue to be my tip to win the new Europa Conference League. I think Mourinho will certainly win this competition. They, they've had a couple of very poor performances in that competition, but they're into the round of 16. They, they take on Vitesse from the end of his year. And to be fair and with respect to all the other clubs in the, the round of 16, I think with exception to the likes of Marseille and Leicester, there aren't too many challenges for Roma. So Roma could very easily come away from the season with a, a, a European title. Mourinho would create history in becoming the first to do that. And I can really see that taking place. They are still with, in with a chance of finishing in the top four in Serie A. Look, they're, they're only six points behind Juventus, who, well, you were, uh, are unbeaten in the last 19 fixtures. Um, they did lose in the Super Cup final. That was in the 120th minute. But with exception to that, you were in fine form on that front, but certainly haven't been in the winning form consistently. So I still think that top four is a is a chance for, for a Roma team who they take on Atalanta this weekend, the direct rival there. So look, Mourinho has taken a very, a very young Roma squad, a very promising Roma squad, and he's taken them to, to a commendable position at this stage of the season. Sure, they've dropped some points, particularly of late in matches that will otherwise you would have predicted that that would not have been the outcome. But look, I think there's there's enough to, to be seen from this Roma team that in a couple of their good performances, I think most notably back end of 21, they had a 4-1 win away to Atalanta, which very, very tough to, to go to Atalanta. And I think they've they performed very well at their best. So I think they'll certainly stick with Mourinho going into next season. But we know Mourinho normally season two, season three, that's when, that's when the problems start to arise. So hopefully not from the wrong sake, but I think there's been enough to, to stick with him at least for now going forward. We know one thing, we, it will definitely be entertaining whatever happens. Uh, <laughs> What one thing that is entertaining is the top of Serie A. It's probably one of the most refreshing uh, recent campaigns uh, from a from a neutrals point of view. And Nap- Napoli sit astride the top on on goal difference from in uh, from Milan and obviously Inter uh, not very far away at all. Um, focusing on Napoli, they probably weren't rated, or you can tell me otherwise, as a a major challenger this season. But Spalletti. Is he one of the most kind of underrated people in Serie A? And do you think that he could actually take them all the way this season? Yeah, I certainly think that Spalletti has done an exceptional job. Spalletti has had some very good stints over the time. And I, I do think he's one of Italy's more underrated managers. He was the individual who, who led Roma in the, well, sort of the, the late 2000s, 06 to, to 2010, when they were pushing into Milan, obviously in the absence of Juve in those years, they were pushing into Milan for every Scudetto. They, they were making it deep into Champions League, Champions League knockout stages. And then Spalletti certainly over, over his time has, I feel, always been underrated. And look, I think it is still surprising what, what he and this Napoli squad have been able to do. It is a very talented 
Napoli squad. It is a, a squad with a number of internationals from, from all corners of the globe. A very, very potent attack. We know the likes of Insigne and Luis Mertens and Osimhen who's come in. So there's a lot of quality in this Napoli squad, but I don't think anyone had, had envisaged this. I think Inter and Milan are the two that most in the, in the preseason were tipping to go very deep. But look, as it stands, Napoli, well, unfortunately eliminated by Barcelona last week in the Europa League, but at the end of the day, fortunately, potentially for their Scudetto hopes, because looking at their run home, Napoli, look, they, they, they can be winning most of these games. It starts this week and they take on Milan. It's one big two. It's at the Maradona in Naples. And this match, at the moment, both level 57 points, but this match is effectively a four-pointer for Napoli, because if they win... They'll go three points clear of Milan, but they'll also guarantee the better head-to-head record. And that's how the teams are separated in Italy. So with a better head-to-head record, with a win this weekend over Milan, that will ensure that they're four points clear of the Rossoneri. And, and look, at, at this stage, into Milan in third, they're certainly not playing anywhere near their best. They haven't scored for over 400 minutes. It does potentially look that if Napoli can pick up three points this weekend, that it's Napoli's title to lose, which is remarkable with, well, 10 rounds, uh, ten or 11 rounds to play. Beautiful, mate. Well done, Adriana. Look, you stay well, mate. It's morning over there in the beautiful city of Milan. Get down to one of those uh, wonderful cafes, maybe Locando del Gato Rosso Cafe Emistro. <laughs> um, for those who don't know, the, uh, the, the Red Cat Cafe. Um, that's if I recall correctly, <laughs> that's the yeah. one. Now, that's the plan. It's a pleasure as always, guys. Keep up the great work. Good on you, mate. Okay, Adriano Del Monte, what a great uh, guy he is, and, and nobody knows more about uh, Italian football than he does, the boy from Melbourne. Okay, stick around. We're going to bring it home with stoppage time. We're going to talk more on the uh, uh, the international fallout of uh, the Russia invasion of Ukraine, uh, the uh, the situation at Chelsea, the situation with Russia out of the World Cup, all the rest of it. Um, we're going to break it down in stoppage time on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you for Chemist Warehouse, home of real brands and real savings, and Storage King, the kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. This is Box to Box, this is stoppage time, and as we've been doing over the last few months, we've been extending out stoppage time to cover as many points as uh, we, uh, yeah, we've got time to, to talk about, and uh, and this week we've covered a range of, uh, of different football stories uh, outside of uh, what's related to international events. But but we do want to sink our teeth into as much as we can and, and, and make some observations uh, from our own points of view about uh, the uh, fallout of uh, Russia's invasion of the Ukraine from a footballing point of view. And uh, uh, Derek, um, look, it's so hard to, to try and encapsulate it into, into a... a, a a brief response. Um, so we're not going to even attempt to do that. What's your opening remarks? How, how do you, how do you see what we've uh, seen fall out from a footballing point of view um, with the events of the last couple of weeks? Has to be said that I think this is you know going to be one of the, if not the biggest football story globally. I think uh, this year, uh, Roman Abramovich's legacy at Chelsea. Uh, will be and was cemented by the recent World Club Cup victory. And of course, during his time at the club, he won five Premier Leagues, five FA Cups, two Champions League, three League Cup, two Europa League, and a bunch of other stuff. So 
an unbelievable tenure and I was kind of on the front lines of this as a Arsenal season ticket holder back in the noughties when really it was Arsenal and Manchester United dominating the uh, footballing landscape. It was Ferguson and Wenger, these uh, generational managers going toe-to-toe every season and then a man called Abramovich, who no one had heard of, swept into Chelsea, uh, took them over from Ken Bates, who famously bought Ken Chelsea. Bates, yeah, yeah bought, bought Chelsea for a pound because yeah, it was saddled with so much debt. The apocryphal story of Abramovich flying over London, over Stamford Bridge and pointing at another patch of green land and said we should build our stadium there before being told that that was Hyde Park and that the Queen might not be happy with uh, with that plan. But Roman, regardless of where he gets his money from and that side of it, has sunk a fortune into Chelsea and he's done it relentlessly, consistently. He's regenerated the side time and time again. He's redefined how managers come and go within football. We spoke about Ferguson and Wenger. Well, that era has gone because it's now about the disposable manager and a two to three year tenure uh, where where you get a chance to, to win a trophy and do something. Of course, Ancelotti won the double, got sacked. Roberto Di Matteo won the Champions League, got sacked. Uh, Mourinho had the most important piece of uh, success in the club's history in his first in, got sacked. So this is the legacy that Abramovich leaves. And, uh, of course, for financial fair play, there's all a result of this purchase when it became clear that oligarchs, nation states and others could come in and change the change the footballing landscape. And there will be Chelsea fans who can remember the Ken Bates era, remember it well, remember when Chelsea weren't that good a team, when Stamford Bridge were falling apart, was falling apart and they were playing the likes of Nigel Spackman and uh, Mark Steen up front and uh, all sorts of players I can't remember now. And then there'll be the other Chelsea fans who have come in at the start of the Mourinho era, the Lampard, the Drogba, the Terry uh, era, and they will be panicking and they'll be going, you know, are we going to get a owner if, if he does sell the club? And if he, even if he sells it to another billionaire, are they going to get a guy who puts in that amount of money and that amount of energy, regardless of his motivation for doing so? And I'll leave it there because we don't have lawyers to, to defend us on this show. Um, you know, are they are they going to get a cronky billionaire but come in and not invest in the club, Michael? So, I mean, this is this is seismic stuff. Uh, you know, I think you know I can hear you champing at the bit to get in, Michael. So, what do you say to all that? Well, I mean, um, forgetting about where he got his money from because we had some strong words about that earlier in the show. But he's really been the perfect owner because he's just kept tipping money in, and he's just kept trying to find a, a, a formula that has his team winning. And um, all the Chelsea um, journos who have who, been on the beat, they say when he's in, in when he's in England, when he's allowed to be in England and he's spending time, he's down at the training ground. And Drogba has said back in the early days that, you know, they would look across on a wintry afternoon and they're, you know, practising set pieces and he's, hang on, that's Roman under the umbrella you know, by himself standing there watching training. So you'd have to say that he's a football person. So, um, you know, putting aside where he got his money from, he's been the perfect donor for that club and he really has. He's delivered 19 trophies, um, everything that you could possibly imagine. And um, that club, when it was taken over, um, if you had said in the tenure of Roman Abranovich, 
they were going to achieve what they did. Uh, most people would have choked on their Bovril, and uh, so well done to the football side of Roman Abramovich. Let's move on to some other um, topics we haven't covered throughout the course of the show, one of which was the Carabao Cup final. Um, I think you all knew that I would eventually get to this and um, the magnificent victory by Liverpool and uh, uh, the incredible uh, penalty shootout in, in the end. It didn't sort of work out for Thomas Tuchel that day. He was either – it was it – was, uh, all duck or no dinner for him uh, with that late goalkeeping change and it didn't uh, quite come to according to the plan that he had in mind. Probably the most entertaining nil-nil that we've seen for some time. I, I counted four goals disallowed. It was absolute chaos. With uh, I mean, I wouldn't have liked to have been a fan in the stadium having to constantly celebrate and then, and then sort of swallow my celebration again and again. Uh, the quality of the penalties, of course, on the most part, when it came to penalties, it was excellent from both sides and some cool heads from uh, players on both sides, not necessarily the uh, the, the experienced heads, but uh, young young people, young players as well, uh, doing a great job. I, I think with uh, uh, Kepa, I think he could have at least got to one of those penalties. Konate's penalty for Liverpool wasn't that convincing. And yes, to be honest, he was brought on. And, and, and look, we we've all know the history of this. We go back to... Van Hal and Tim Krul, of course, from the uh, the World Cup, and it worked really well on the day. Tim Krul's a big, intimidating goalkeeper. I think it confused a lot of players uh, on the pitch at the time. But I don't think this was a uh, you know this was a pretty telegraphed move from Chelsea. And Mendy himself, as most people have pointed out, has already come through a penalty shootout uh, success with his with his mm-hmm. team in. AFCON and he's already had a pretty good game and I think that he's a bloody big lump of a guy in the middle of the goal and I, if you gave me a choice between Kepa and um, uh, Kepa and uh, uh, Mendy I, don't, I think I'd want to take the, the kick against Kepa of course he wasn't brought on to take a penalty but of course it was an absolute classic from a goalkeeper if you know Kelleher on the one hand uh, apparently had been practicing all week and he just did what you should do which is keep it low go across your body and into the corner and you've got a chance but uh, Kepa got the old pitching wedge out and thought he was taking a goal kick and you know maybe he should have refused to come on as a substitute just like he famously refused to come off when he was going to be substituted in the uh the same match. But Rob, have you got another interesting line on Liverpool? Well, can, oh, before Rob speaks, can I just ask uh, uh, Derek to, you've had four opportunities to tell uh, the listening public of Box to Box Kepa's surname. I do believe it is Ariza <laughs> Balaga. Ariza Balaga. You've, you've dodged actually giving the bloke a little bit more recognition, not just from his pitching wedge miss penalty shot or the 21 successful spot kids before that, but Kepa. Ariza Balaga, is that right, Willem? Ariza Balaga. Ariza Balaga. I think it might even be Aritza Balaga. <laughs> Aritza Balaga. But anyway, I had a crack at it. Derek didn't. So um, that's uh, Edgley one, Dyson nil. Oh, God. This is uh, the Michael Edgley who's had some famous pronunciation um, performances over the journey. I think Willem Van Dendren wins the uh, the pronunciation award on Box to Box Edge uh, while you're handing out the brickbats, my friend. But Derek did ask me a question about something that I picked up in the uh, the post-match where Jurgen Klopp referred to uh, Neurol, which is a German uh, neuroscience company who'd been helping Liverpool out with, uh, with their penalties where uh, they had headsets 
it with electrodes to measure the live electrical activity in their brain while they were practicing penalties. And, uh, and, and he directly credited some of this practice uh, that they did with uh, the, the company. And uh, as it turns out, uh, Dr. Nicholas Hausler and Patrick Hunschka, uh, a former academy player at uh, a German side, were in the stadium and joined in the celebrations after the event, if you look at their Twitter account. So, uh, you know, the extent to which clubs go to these days to uh, to get that little advantage that... Uh, Jürgen is a shareholder in the company? Yeah, well, you never know. But uh, no, Jürgen's a yeah, stand-up guy. I doubt it. I think he there you go, Rob's just... They, they've been cheating to win the the uh, club, the uh, League Cup, bad. Derek. So, that's practice. All right. So, well, Edge, you had a you had a few uh, topics that you wanted to roll through, and uh, yeah, just before I do, but I, I thought Henderson's comments after the game on a serious state were very, very good. Um, he talked about the club uh, that it was very special. It was amazing uh, because um, we've used the entire squad, the academy, the first team, everybody's chipped in in this campaign, which makes it a real club achievement. It's mad to think that it's 10 years ago since we won it. So, I, I mean, that is a good point to make. The winners of the League Cup do do it by, if they're a big club, Derek, don't they? They, they, they do do it by playing the entire squad early early doors. They uh, obviously have the uh, academy involved and, um, and squad plays before the big boys get involved at the pointy end of the competition. So, well done. I've got a couple of things. I wanted to talk about, uh, just very briefly, Mark... Um, Bielsa and Leeds United. Um, obviously, um, that's been an emotional sacking. He's a very popular um, football figure, and uh, Marcelo Bielsa has been uh, pretty good for Leeds United. However, it was just they were they were just falling off the edge of a cliff, weren't they, Derek? Um, they got belted four 0 at home um, to Tottenham. They that came off a six 0 hammering at Liverpool, a four two defeat at Manchester United, and a three 0 loss at fellow strugglers Everton. So they'd lost five of their last six Premier League matches. Um, they conceded 20 goals. Um, and that's yeah. the most... 20 goals in a month, which is the most by a top flight since Everton. Um, no, sorry, since Newcastle in April in 1986. So I don't know any coach who could have survived that sort of run. Well, it goes back to that point I made earlier, Edge, about disposable coaches. And even Bielsa, who has transformed Leeds United from being a club, an absolute mess of a club when he took over in 2018 to where they are now and finishing ninth last season. Uh, but they've they've pulled the trigger, as you said. But he leaves a, a wonderful legacy. He's well-loved at the club. Jesse Marsh comes in. He's a product of the Red Bull system. Yeah, had some success with Red Bull, uh, Salzburg, and then less success with Leipzig. But, but he comes in and he's got... 12, uh, 12 games to try and save this club, which, as you said, is free-fall uh, falling through the Premier League. Uh, one other thing that's in free-fall, though, which is Arsenal's finances. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, the club's recorded a record loss of £107.3 million after tax. That's more than double their loss of 2019-20 uh, when they uh, posted a £47.8 million loss. That's uh, substantially obviously impacted by the coronavirus pandemic, which forced the majority of matches in 2020-21 to be played behind closed doors. Um, and obviously, um, what I noted, though, out of the reporting of this, the financial statements, is that 
um, the magnet for fan criticism, Stan Kroenke, and his company that he controls, KC UK Incorporated, have been ploughing money into the club uh, to meet uh, bond requirements on their debt associated with the stadium and also the working capital required to pay wages. So um, Stan Kroenke, who gets a lot of criticism, um, has been quietly pumping money into that club to keep it solvent uh, at a time uh, during the pandemic. He'll obviously probably get it back. They're all um, loans at this point in time, but I imagine he will, oh, he will get it back. He will but, call them in. He will call them in, unlike, yeah, but unlike just, Roman Abramovich. But, but, but I'm just, you know, club directors have got to do the things at the right time and uh, and you've got to give him credit for that. Yeah, look, I think Arsenal have been affected by COVID like everyone else. They're also affected by the fact that I, I'm losing count now, but possibly five seasons outside the Champions League now. So, you know, not not getting that, that, that kind of revenue, but the cost of running a football club remains the same. In fact, goes up. And as they try to reestablish themselves in the Champions League, they have to then go out and buy players. And I did notice, though, um, uh, Michael, that the Arsenal wage bill is the lowest that it has been since... Um, sort of even nine or ten years ago. And so I'd say getting, that's a direct correlation you know, to Cronky's <laughs> commitments to the yeah. club. I'd say that he's wanting to probably yeah. wind him back and uh, mm. the pressure's come on to uh, cut the wage bill. Well, yeah, and that, that makes sense with Aubameyang obviously leaving. Yeah. And Arsenal fans, you know, some consternation because he's now scoring loads of goals over in Barcelona. But I think that's a move that ultimately is working really well for Barcelona uh, and is working quite well for, for Arsenal, even if for a financial point of view. But bring us home, Edge, with uh, our favourite topic, Qatar and the World Cup. Yes, there's obviously all sorts of news. There's some news breaking that Qatar's using some... Uh, former German spies to help them with some negative press in uh, in Germany. However, this one, um, yeah, this one stood out to me, and uh, we like to cover the obvious um, areas of social distance between what happens in the Arab world and what happens everywhere else. Uh, rights groups are urging Qatar to drop a case against a Mexican World Cup employee who could be sentenced to jail and a flogging after she reported an assault and was then later charged with committing unmarried sex. Uh, Paola Shikarat, uh, 28 years of age, was left with bruises on her arm, shoulder and back after a male acquaintance forced his way into her Doha apartment and attacked her in June. Uh, Paola, who fled the country and, and could be sentenced in absentia, was charged with sex outside wedlock, which is a crime in Qatar, after her assailant told police the pair were in a relationship. Breaking the Xena laws, which criminalise unmarried sex, carries a potential sentence of up to seven years jail and lashes. The harsh punishment is rarely carried out. However, um, uh, she was um, Paola was working as a behavioural economist, uh, went to the Mexican embassy in Doha with photos of her injuries and reported the assault to police. So that is just an indication of the world doesn't always do things like we do in Western democracies, and uh, it's our job to highlight those. And uh, if I was the Qatar government, I'd be um, uh, taking the urgings of various rights groups seriously and uh, drop those charges. Serious stuff, Edge. Um, I think we've probably run out of time, Rob, but uh, maybe we'll just bring it home. I know we don't look forward too much in this segment because we, we do worry about things by the time you guys uh, listen to this, that things may go out of date. But the very best of luck to Boreham Wood by the time that this podcast goes out <laughs> or pretty close to it, they will be playing their, final, their, their FA Cup tie. There's been some great ones already and they will play uh, Everton tonight and... Uh, all the very best to them, Rob. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and it's something that I do, I, I mention it from time to time on the show, is uh, if uh, you're out and about and you wake up early in the morning, you tune into either BBC Sounds or Talk Sport. Uh, uh, often the games aren't geo-blocked, particularly the Premier League uh, matches that uh, um, that are uh, you know not under the, the international rights. So they weren't geo-blocked, they will be now. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, sometimes you just listen to these games and I, I just loved... Uh, Tuning into the BBC as they were calling that that uh, that Chelsea Luton match from Kenilworth Road and the the, the classic old ground and uh, and the commentator uh, Mason Mount uh, missed a shot and it bounced off the corrugated iron roof and into a puddle. Just the way they describe things. So if uh, look, it'll be too late by the time most people get the chance to listen to, to this to hear Boreham Woods' efforts. But uh, but just uh, do yourself a favour and uh, download both of those apps. Well, guys, we will wrap it up. It's been a very busy show across lots of different ranges uh, of discussion uh, internationally and domestically with football. Um, we hope we've contributed to the conversation all around. Uh, Michael, um, you have a good week, my friend. You too, Rob. Derek, well done. Thanks, gents. And Willem. Thank you, Rob. And Michael Edgley, you've avoided questions so far on Heidelberg. Two games into the Victorian MPL season. They are stone-cold motherless last. I've been to both games. They've shipped seven. They've scored one, and they're in all sorts. So next week will be the reckoning. You've got one more week to pull out a result. Thank you, Rob. Damo, you can edit that out, please. Damo, <laughs> <laughs> you can leave it exactly where it is. And Go the burgers. Well, mate, we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening again. Please subscribe to box to box wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and join us next week when we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the world game.